Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, as we are continuing our studies in the life of Christ, and particularly this morning on the, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, greatest sermon Jesus preached, one of them anyway that we know of. I'm sure he preached others. But we're looking at this morning at, as we've finished now the, the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 10, I, and, and now we're going to look at what we're to do with that be salt and light, it, it kind of said, and in my puny little mind, it's like verses 3 through 10 was the recipe, the ingredients to become salt and light. And, you know, it, it in the purpose of the salt and light now, and the, and the Beatitudes, as a result of the Beatitudes, it was to now show the impact that these people who are living these Beatitudes were to have on the world. Jesus used, used two common similitudes here, salt and light, to show us what we are to be. Let's begin with verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. And when he says you, he's talking to Christians. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So Jesus is now calling us to holy behavior. He's talking about the ministry and the witness that we have to the world. And Jesus, is, and Jesus uses two similarities here to show and to teach us about the responsibility of holy behavior. We could also call it the ministry of Christians. You know, many times people think ministry is, well, you know, I'm a teacher, or I, I, I'm an usher, or I'm, you know, I, I do this, or, you know, I'm a worship leader, or, or, you know, your ministry is being salt and light. Yeah, you can have other ministries, but if you think, well, I don't have a ministry. Yeah, you do. You are salt and you are light. And this is what Jesus is going to be talking about here. So, you know, they are simple things. Jesus uses salt and light, which, again, Jesus was the best. Man, he was the master at using everyday th things, the simple things in life that teach us important lessons. And here he uses the simple things of salt and light. And he uses them to show Christians what their ministry to the world is. So the first example here in verse 13 that he uses is salt. He will also use salt in Mark 9 and Luke 14, where Jesus used the illustration of salt to teach lessons and what was involved in following him. So salt was often used by Jesus to teach important lessons. For this lesson in particular this morning, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. So here salt represents the believer, the Christian, you. Those whose behavior is holy as described by the principles of the Beatitudes in verses 3 through 10. And when Jesus says to the Christian, you are the salt of the earth. One of the things that he's saying is that the Christian, you, is very valuable to society. And it's pointed out in the fact that salt is something that has great value to society. Salt is used mainly to season or preserve food. And even though salt is a simple product in life, it is a very valuable one. Salt today is not expensive. 
it's easy to get. It's not usually thought of as something that's very interesting. It's not something I think we think about every day. So we don't think much about its value the way that we should. But salt is and has important value to man as a seasoning and preserving agent, and it has been for a long time. Homer called called salt the vine. Plato said it was substance dear to the gods. Even some barbaric tribes sometimes made a bag of salt worth more than a man, showing the great value of salt in our society. And that salt, uh, as a symbol, shows the great value of the Christian to society. And often considered of little value, and yet the Christian really is, Christians really are the salt of the earth. Those who lie, those whose lives reflect the holy behavior of the Beatitudes are of great value to society. All you have to do is look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah to see how valuable God's people are. Remember, God told Abraham, if you show me 10 righteous people, I'll leave it alone. Show me 10 salty people, basically, and I won't destroy Sodom. Well, he destroyed Sodom. He showed that you know, there, there was none there. There was none righteous. There was no salt there. So, again, uh, the, the godless world, it despises Christians. Despises Christians. And much of the world persecutes them. And, and, and we're seeing that going on the increase today. Also, the liberal news, they always, every chance they get, they take pot shots at Christians or Christianity. But it's God's people that are the valuable ones in society. And our nation owes a lot more than they could ever know because of the presence of Christians in the nation. No other people have done so much for the nation than Christians. Salt has many uses. Scientists say that the salt content in the oceans of the world are really important because without the saltiness of the oceans, large areas of it would become just giant polluted bodies of water infecting the earth with disease. And like salt, Christians are to have a purifying effect on mankind. And Jesus expects, he's not, he doesn't hope, he doesn't suggest, he expects his people to have morally, behave morally, and having a spiritual influence, holding back the spread of sin and its infectious disease. When God's people are living holy lives, and they walk into a room, it often causes the people in that room to want to change their behavior. You know, and I go, and, and you guys can relate to it. Uh, you know, when, when I first got saved, or I should say when Pastor Raw first got saved, and I was still living in the world, and I was with all my friends, and he would just want to drop by to be that salt, to be that light, we would cringe. We would want to stop our behavior in the sense that, well, you know, we'd hide the liquor, we'd put away the drugs, we'd stop the bad language, we'd just, we'd just stand there, we didn't know what to do. We were just so uncomfortable. And, and you know, it, it just, it, it has that effect. It has, a, it has a, an influence. It has a preserving influence. And, and again, it just, it causes people to, to want to change their behavior. Uh, it, it, again, it's just um, something that, that's priceless to society. Uh, that light is so bright that you just can't stand it. Those with holy behavior, they will have a holy influence on society again salt is a great preservative now as we all know in biblical times they didn't have any refrigeration and salt was used as the main ingredient for preserving foods like meat 
People with holy behavior will also be a preservative. They will have a preserving influence. They can save a nation and a society from God's judgment, as again witnessed in Sodom. Now, to the world, you may not be important. But if you are a righteous person, if you are salt, you're priceless to society. And you're priceless to your surroundings. And you're able to do what no government or social programs could ever do. Salt also enhances the flavor of food. Without salt, many foods are bland and they're tasteless. It's the same way with people with holy behavior. They will add a good flavor to society. Salt also increases thirst. And as salt, we should increase people's thirst for God. You know, for that living water that they so badly need. When, when, the, when those people are present, when those of, uh, the salt of the earth are present, they will encourage, they will inspire, and they will show people the way to have real life and a real hope. Christians should be a blessing to others and to the world. Sin curses, but Christianity blesses. You know, so it's the same way with people with holy behavior. They will add a good flavor to society. But then Jesus gives a warning about that saltiness. Jesus said, but if that salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? In other words, what, what do we do with it now? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. So Jesus' warning for the salt is about keeping its saltiness. And that warning takes up most of these verses, which shows us just how important this warning is that Jesus gives here. The failure of the salt is that it's lost its flavor. It is not salty anymore. Now, the words lost its savor come from the Greek. Okay, it comes from the Greek word moros, where we get our English word moron from. And the word means dull. It means sluggish. So when that word is applied to the mind, it means stupid or silly. But the way it's applied here, it means the salt has become dull, meaning it's become bland, it's become tasteless, and it's become flat. What good is salt without any saltiness? In Romans 1.22, the words uh, 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 fools, or I should say the words, um, they, they became fools, uh, speaks of the ungodly, and it says, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. So again, the salt losing its savor, uh, again, it speaks of those who became fools. Uh, it's, it's again um, translated as those who became fools in uh, Romans one twenty one. The meaning of the word suggests that the cause of the loss of the believer's flavor was a failure of their character. Christians can lose their moral and spiritual flavor by playing the fool and disobeying God's word and leaving God out of their life just like the Romans did that Paul was addressing. You can lose your valuable flavor by mingling with the world and becoming corrupt. Remember, that was one of the problems with the children of Israel when they left Egypt. Remember, a bunch of the world, a bunch of the Egyptians left with them. And later on, they were called the mixed multitude. And many of those in the mixed multitude, they began to complain while on that journey. And as they began to complain, the Israelites joined in with them. 
And they complained. So they were all complaining because you had the mixed multitude. They were complaining about no meat, not this, no this. And the Israelites thought, oh, they chimed in and joined in with them. So again, uh, the mixed multitude uh, is not a, a good experience for God's people. When Christians live in a worldly manner, it will destroy their spirituality. They will not have the tasty flavor in them anymore. It's holy behavior that gives flavor to the Christian. So when the salt loses its saltiness, then it is good for nothing. It is useless. When a Christian falls into sin, he's in danger of totally losing his testimony, his witness. And when he loses his flavor, he will become worthless for Christian service. But unfortunately, there are many like this in the church of Jesus Christ today. They're still saved, but they have stained their life by sin so that they're practically worthless to the church. They've lost their value for service and no longer have ministry for the Lord. You see, once the salt loses its flavor, it will never be good for anything again. And it is Jesus who says, you're good for nothing, not me. So take it up with Jesus. He says, you are no longer good for nothing. He says, that salt will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. These words should wake up every Christian this morning listening to them. Jesus says we can lose our place and our power in service permanently. And again, this clearly reminds us about how crippling uh, the work of sin is when it comes to Christian service. And as I was going through this study, you know, we just finished um, 2 Chronicles uh, chapter 26 this last Wednesday about Uzziah. Uzziah fits the exact description of that one who loses his salt. And we'll relate to it as we go along. So again, these words should wake up every Christian. Again, it is clearly a reminder about how uh, sin cripples us and, and, and the effect it has on Christian service. If a spiritual leader in the church commits adultery, they're done or should be. But you, you see pastors that have married once or twice, three times even, and they're still in the pulpit. I'm sorry, biblically, they are disqualified from that position. They will never again be able to get back their season, the seasoning they once had. And this is true of many Christians. You can't commit certain sins and keep your flavor as a Christian. You will be marked forever by the world as well as other Christians. You'll never be trusted like you were before. And, you know, and my wife were talking about this the other day, you know, when Kathy and I were having problems. And she wanted, she said, we need to go to counseling. And we, we did, we went to counseling and, and, you know, we're sitting there and the pastor's talking and, and, and I think it was at the end of our, 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 our session that, that Kathy noticed, you know, there's a couple of pictures here, the man and his wife and some kids on this picture over here. And she goes, oh, is this your, is this your wife and your kids? He goes, well, this is my first wife, but these are my kids from, you that, that ended, that just wiped out everything that was said in that counseling possession. <laughs> Kathy goes, if you, well, she didn't say it to him, but if, if he can't take, couldn't take care of his own marriage, how's he going to help us with ours? You see, he lost his season. He lost his salt. He lost his influence. You will never be an inspiration like you were before. The shame will never be completely removed in, in this life. You'll never be what you were or could have been. The failure will eat you up for the rest of your life. 
And we can see how, how true this was in David's life. Even though David repented of his adultery and his murder, he was never the same man after that. He lost something. It was a sad, sad tragedy for David. Men poke fun at the seriousness of, seriousness of sin. They pervert the grace of God. And they turn God into a kindly old man who pats you on the head and winks at your sin. Go look at Second uh, Chronicles 26 and see what happened when Uzziah sinned before God. God just didn't, you know, oh, well, and, you know, pat him on the back and, and, and wink at the sin. No, he struck him. He, he judged him immediately on the spot. You know, God does not tolerate sin. He doesn't mess around with sin like many do today. Uh, you know, again, uh, God doesn't overlook sin. That isn't the way it works. It isn't the way God works. When salt has lost its flavor, its value is gone forever, Jesus said. What a powerful likeness salt is to Christian behavior. Salt that's no longer salty is cast out, Jesus said. Do you remember the words to the, the, in Second Chronicles 26? It says that the priest cast out Uzziah from the temple. Jesus says salt that's lost its flavor is to be cast out. That's exactly what happened to Uzziah when he sinned in the temple. This means that the salt is no longer has any use. It's no longer used for salt. It's thrown away. When you lose your spiritual value to mankind, you will be excluded from fellowship and friendship of good people. What happened to Uzziah? He was cut off, the scripture says. He was cut off from the church. He couldn't live in his palace anymore. He couldn't have fellowship with the congregation or those that he loved. Just like it's saying here. Uzziah was excluded from fellowship and good people and from the congregation. Sometimes you may be excommunicated by the church. That's exactly what happened to Uzziah. He couldn't live in the palace anymore. Sometimes you may no, may no, uh, may no longer be included in consideration by the church or by others for service. You've lost your trustworthiness. Salt that's lost its flavor was often put on roads and pathways and people walked on it. This picture represents the total humility and ridicule that ex that's experienced by the believer that's lost his spiritual flavor through sin. Before the believer fell into sin, he was, he was to be well-regarded and well-valued. But sin changed all of that and the believer is now despised and looked at as nothing, as Jesus says here. They're thrown out of their lofty position. They became scorned and despised by others. May we listen and heed this strong warning about losing our saltiness and cause us to be more careful about our behavior and be more committed in obeying Jesus Christ and living for him. Then Jesus uses the second illustration. He gives about our ministry or the calling to those to holy behavior. And that is light. Notice what he says now in verses um, 14 through 16. He says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Light is another good illustration of what a Christian should be in society. 
like light, like salt, is very important to life, even though, again, we pretty much take light for granted like we do salt. About the only time we really think about light is when it gets dark. Other than that, it rarely enters our mind. But you can see how important light is just by going back to the Old Testament and look at creation. It's the first thing God created because we can't live without light. There's no life without light because it was the most useful, most needed. Think again what this world would be like without light. Jesus says in verses 14 through 16 that Christians are the light of the world and they are to shine in the world, giving us the description of a society and a description of the believer. Because Jesus said we need to shine our light, it means that there's darkness. If there needs to be light, that means there must be darkness. And the world is in darkness spiritually and morally. And in several places in the Bible, sinners are said to be in darkness. When a person is saved, Peter said this, Jesus called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. 1 Peter 2.9. The world calls this darkness progressiveness. Oh, they're so proud about how progressive they become. With all of their great advancements in medicine and technology and science and diversity and their open-mindedness. The world thinks it's removed the darkness when in reality they made it even darker and harder to see. Because you see, in their eyes, the Christian is the one who's dark. They're the one who's in the dark because we hold to moral principles. The world has not produced any moral or spiritual light. It has no light to show us anything about eternity. And our age is getting more evil by the day. And every age before us was also an evil age. The unholy world is in dark and it's getting darker every day. It's a disturbing darkness that grips the whole world. The world desperately needs the light of Jesus Christ. And you are the light of the world. When Jesus said this about Christians, he lifted the position and the value of Christians to a very high level. It's not the great philosophers of the world like Plato and Aristotle and Socrates or any others or, or any of the political figures out there today or successful businessmen who think they are the shining lights. We see some of these new uh, young politicians being raised up who claim to be free thinkers and they want to give everything away. Free stuff to everybody, you know, free college, free health care. You know, whether, who, no matter who you are, come one, come all. You can have it. We'll just give it to you. Really, who's gonna, somebody's going to pay for it. <laughs> Nothing's free. They're not the valuable ones in society. And if they get their way, they will totally ruin society. It's the Christians who are valuable in society. And yet it's the Christian who is belittled and, and laughed at and scorned by those who, uh, who, who are thought to be the high and mighty of the world, who are thought to, to be able to give more light about the things that matter than most of all, you know, anybody else. And it's the Christian who is able to, to shed more light about things that really matter, that are really important. 
And when you listen to the so-called worldly elites talk about God, oh, you know, our, our, our movie stars and our rock stars and our sports, you know, guys, oh, such elites. And when you hear them talk about God and Jesus and the Bible, you can't help but laugh, though it's not funny. But the man or the woman who is a believer can speak more enlightening wisdom spiritually and morally more in five minutes than, than all of these people could in, in years. Listen to what the psalmist said in Psalm 119, 98 through 105. You, God, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies because they, that is, your commandments, are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers because your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep your precepts. There are a lot of ways to learn about truth. We can learn it from our enemies in the everyday experiences of life. We can learn it from our teachers in the explanations of life from books and lessons. And we can learn it from the older saints who have had the experiences of life and they know the principles at work. Joshua learned from serving with Moses and from the battles that he fought and from the experiences, both good and bad, that came in his life. But the most important thing he did, Joshua, all right, was to meditate on God's word because his meditation helped him to test what he had learned in the other three areas of life, you know, from the, from the elders and, and from those that, that experienced life and, and uh, again, from the ancients and, and those that, that he knew. He knew he, again, in all of those other areas of life, he learned more. He, and he put it all together in one fine, balanced whole. God shares his truth with babes, Luke tells us, and those who are humble enough to receive it, Paul says. But we've been given a responsibility as lights. Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. When Jesus said Christians were the light of the world, he, great, he gave great value to the Christians. That showed their high position in the world as far as God was concerned. But you know what? Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't stop with their positions. He gave them responsibility as well. He told the Christians to shine. In other words, Jesus ordered them to do a job. Positions bring responsibility. Now, some people get so excited about their position, about the glory of their title or their rank, that they forget that their position is mainly for carrying out the responsibilities. I've made you and I put you in this position so that you'll carry out a specific certain responsibility. I, I promoted you and put you in that position not to, not to uh, you know, promote yourself, but to carry out a job. And that's what Jesus, I made you lights so that you will shine before men. If Christians have the high rank of being the light of the world, then they have a high responsibility to shine. And Jesus said this, because a city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. You see, a city on a hill is very easy to see. At night, its lights can be seen from far, far away. And in the same way, Christians are to be so noticeable in their shining 
in their light, they're, they're noticed from far away. Now notice, all that a light does is shine. A light is silent. It doesn't say, hey, look at me. It just shines. You can't help but see it. It's like a lighthouse. It shines. And the ships see it. And they know that danger is ahead. A light is to do nothing but shine. You know, the interesting thing about light, it can be, it, you can shine light on a dunghill and it will not be corrupted or infected by the dung. In the same way, Christians are to be so noticeable in their shining. It doesn't have to call out. It doesn't have to make a noise. A lighthouse just stands, like I said, and shines for the ships to see. In principle, this means they are to live their Christians' lives. And to do it in an unmistakable way that you don't have to say a word. There should be no doubt in anybody's mind that we're Christians. And our conviction should be dogmatic. And then many times you hear Christians and people say, well, you know, you, you, you can't be dogmatic about the Bible. Yeah, you can. And yeah, you should. Why? It's God's word. It, it's not man's philosophy. It's not man's ideas. It's God's word. Paul said, speaking the truth in love. But even speaking the truth in love, it, it won't matter to some people because they don't want to hear the truth. And no matter how you speak it, they'll get mad anyway because you tell them the truth. Remember Uzziah, he got furious when the priest said, hey, you don't belong in here. You can't be in here. You can't, you can't be doing what you're doing. And it says that Uzziah got furious. And Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, said that, that, that Uzziah threatened to kill Amaziah and the 80 priests that came in to get him out. Our service should be energetic. Paul said in Romans 12, 11, that, that we shouldn't be lagging in diligence. That is lazy. We should be fervent in spirit serving the Lord. And our preaching should be forceful. Leaving no doubt about what the message is about. It's not to be clouded with jokes and stories and all this. And by the time you get out, what did he say? What was the message about? Our faith and our holy convictions are to be obvious and they are to be eye-catching. Did you see that? In the house, there was a special place for the lampstand that gave the best light. That's why Jesus said that, um, again in verse 15, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand it gives light to all who are in the house. This is the lampstand. It wasn't a candle per se. It was a lampstand. It was like the lampstand in the sense that they put in the temple. That was to shed light everywhere. Well, again, it says here that it's an unmistakable place that, that gives the best light. It was a special place for the lampstand. Because that's where it gave its best light. 
This lampstand, like the city on the hill, shows us that our Christian profession must be unmistakable. It must be, un- it must be recognizable. It must be eye-catching and not secret. Jesus, you don't you know, light a lampstand and stick it under your bed. It's to be in a conspicuous place for everybody to see. Then Jesus talks about the problem of keeping the light from shining by mentioning the foolishness here of hiding the light. You don't put it under the bed. He says people don't light a lamp to put it under a bed. It's not going to do any good there. The reason that we turn on a light is to give light in the dark. But... Are you purposely hiding your light? So you see, in principle, hiding the lamp is like trying to hide the fact that you're a Christian. And as ridiculous as that may be, many Christians do at times hide the fact that they're Christians. Now, why would they do that? Well, how about because they want to be popular? A Christian who wants to be popular with the world isn't really that excited about letting others know, hey, I'm a Christian. But in order to be popular with the world, you have to like the world. What did the scripture say? Love not the world nor the things in it. If a person is living his or her Christian life for all to see, they're more likely to be laughed at and persecuted by the world and not be popular with the world. Letting others know that you're a Christian may cause you to lose some friends. What are some other reasons that one might hide their light is position because there are positions in the world that you won't be able to get or to keep if you live faithfully for jesus christ the liberal news media organizations are not in the habit of hiring conservative news people and if they do they're usually not allowed to air their opinion and if the person shows loyalty to the conservative position he'll lose his job it's the same for christians the world does not like Christians and what they stand for. And if you live your Christian life, you'll either not be hired for a job or you could lose your job. How about persecution? That will keep from someone from not wanting them to know they're Christian, from hiding their light. One of the most common reasons that Christians don't want to let their light shine is when there's persecution going on. When the enemies of God get in power and they start to hunt down the Christians like Saul did on his way to Damascus. In order to protect themselves from persecution, they'll hide their light. But remember this, it is not a praiseworthy practice. Jesus said, whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. The Bible gives three main resources that keep us from shining the light. In verse 14, it's the basket. I'm sorry, 15. Notice, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket. Now, there's another, the basket or bushel, the bushel represents money or business. We can get so caught up with materialism that we stop shining spiritually. And then in Mark 4.21 and Luke 8.16, it uses the term bed. All right? Or under a bed. That's what it says in, in, those, in, in, in Mark 4.21, Luke 8.16. You don't put it under, the, under a bed. So it's something that could be actually, uh, a bed is something that they could actually hide uh, and, and keep their light from shining. The bed speaks of leisure. 
It speaks of becoming lazy and idle. That will also put out the light. And then we get the word uh, a secret place in Luke eleven thirty three, That a person doesn't light their lamp and put it in a secret place. Now, the word translated secret place in Luke eleven thirty three, according to Thayer's Greek lexicon, means a crypt or a vault or a cellar. So what Jesus was saying is you don't light that lamp and then put it in a cellar. This is a cellar or a vault that nobody can see. The cellar speaks of a low moral behavior and anything else that will put out your light quickly. Jesus, without doubt, condemns closet Christianity when he speaks about stopping our light from shining. A lot of people say that faith is a private matter. But Jesus said we're to tell the world. Jesus has no time for secret disciples. He condemns it here. And for those who want to hide the fact that they're Christians, we have to be reminded again about what Jesus said. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. There is definitely not a good future for closet Christians. Being denied by Jesus in front of the Father in heaven isn't a bright future at all. Where we are to let our light shine, where? Before men. This is where we're to let our light shine, before men. It's to show others what goodness and character are. Christians are to shine in order to enlighten people spiritually and morally. Our lives should be lights to show a better way of living and a better way of worshiping. The world is in the dark today. They don't know right from wrong or good and evil. You know, today they're calling evil good and good evil. They especially don't know the important, no important spiritual truths. Christians are to shine the light on these important matters. And another reason or another purpose for shining your light before men, it says here what? To glorify God. This is the main purpose for shining, to glorify God. Everything, all of the purposes are secondary. Paul said, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We must shine to exalt God because the world dishonors God. And if we don't honor him, who's going to? The world needs a light that puts honor on God. And Christians, we are that light. Holy behavior will put the spotlight of honor on God where it belongs. So in these four verses, 13 through 16, Jesus sums up the purpose of believers in the world in one word. Influence. Influence. Whoever lives according to the Beatitudes is going to act in the world like salt and light. Christian character, knowingly or unknowingly, influences other people for better or for worse. Father, thank you so much for this enlightening passage, Lord. God, for shedding so much light as you are the light, God, and we're just to reflect your light, God. Help us to be 
those Christ-like images that go about in this world shining your light, God, for all to see. Father, that we will be like that flame that draws moths to it, Lord. We don't have to say anything. That shining light says it all. It catches the eye. It's noticeable from far away. It draws us to it. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. You're living in a world of darkness, spiritually and morally. Well, Jesus came that he might bring you out of that darkness into his marvelous light. That you might shine. And that you might bring light to all those around you. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And this time is for you to think seriously in this next minute or so about coming to that light, especially just before we take communion. If you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you want to come out of that kingdom of darkness into his marvelous light, then as we worship, you get up out of your seat, you make your way down the aisles towards the steps up front, and I'll meet you there. When the song's over, we'll pray together a prayer of faith.